Good morning. Hear the word of God from Jeremiah, chapters 46, 50, and 51, concerning God's messages to the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. Following messages were given to Jeremiah the prophet from the Lord concerning foreign nations. This message concerning Egypt was given in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, the king of Judah, on the occasion of the battle of Karshemish, when Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, and his army were defeated beside the Euphrates River by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Prepare your shields, advance into battle. Harness the horses and mount the stallions. Take your positions. Put on your helmets. Sharpen your spears and prepare your armor. But what do I see? The Egyptian army flees in terror. The bravest of its fighting men run without a backwards glance. They are terrorized at every turn, says the Lord. The swiftest runners cannot flee. The mightiest warriors, they can't escape. By the Euphrates River to the north, they stumble and fall. Who is this rising like the Nile at flood time, overflowing all of the land? It is the Egyptian army overflowing all the land, boasting that it will cover the earth like a flood, destroying cities and their people. Charge, you horses and chariots, attack You mighty warriors of Egypt, come all you allies from Ethiopia, Libya, who are skilled with the shield and bow. For this is the day of the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, a day of vengeance on his enemies. The sword will devour until it is satisfied. Yes, until it is drunk with your blood. The Lord The Lord of heaven's armies will receive a sacrifice today in the northern country beside the Euphrates River. Now on to chapter 50. The Lord gave Jeremiah the prophet this message concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. This is what the Lord says. Tell the whole world and keep nothing back. Raise a signal flag to tell everyone that Babylon will fall. Her images and her idols will be shattered. Her gods, Bel and Marduk, will be utterly disgraced. For a nation will attack her from the north and bring such destruction that nobody will live there again. Everything will be gone, both people and animals will flee. In those coming days, says the Lord, the people of Israel will return home together with the people of Judah. They will come weeping and seeking the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Jerusalem and will start back home again. They will bind themselves to the Lord with an eternal covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and turned them loose in the mountains. They have lost their way and can't remember how to get back to the sheepfold. 
All who found them devoured them. Their enemies said, We did nothing wrong in attacking them, for they sinned against the Lord, their true place of rest, and the hope of their ancestors. But now, flee from Babylon. Leave the land of the Babylonians like male goats at the head of the flock. Lead my people home again. For I am raising up an army of great nations from the north. They will join forces to attack Babylon, and she will be captured. The enemy's arrows will go straight to the mark, and they will not miss. Babylonia will be looted until the attackers are glutted with loot. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, chapter 51, starting with verse 54. Listen, hear the cry of Babylon, the sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. For the Lord is destroying Babylon. He will silence her loud voice. Waves of enemies pound against her. The noise of battle rings the city. Destroying armies come against Babylon. Her mighty men are captured and their weapons break in their hands. For the Lord is a God who gives just punishment. He always repays in full. I will make her officials and wise men drunk along with her captains, her officers, and warriors. They will fall asleep and never wake up again, says the king, those whose name is the Lord of heaven's armies. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. The thick walls of Babylon, they will be leveled to the ground, and her massive gates will be burned. The builders from many lands have worked in vain, for their work will be destroyed by fire. The prophet Jeremiah gave this message to Sariah, son of Neriah, and grandson of Masiah, a staff officer, when Sariah went to Babylon with King Zedekiah of Judah. This was during the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign. Jeremiah had recorded on a scroll all of the terrible disasters that would soon come upon Babylon. All the words written here. He said to Sariah, When you go to Babylon, read aloud everything on this scroll. Then say, Lord, you have said that you will destroy Babylon so that neither people nor animals will remain there. She will lie empty and abandoned forever. When you have finished reading the scroll, tie it to a stone and throw it in the river Euphrates. Then say, in this same way, Babylon and her people will sink, never again to rise because of the disasters I will bring upon her. This is the end of Jeremiah's messages. This is the word of the Lord. Tough, tough passage, right? You come to church and we 
go through the Bible. We want to start in Genesis and go to Revelation and continually go to God's Word and hear from Him. And we, we're in a seven-week series looking at Jeremiah. Uh, I'm Danny, by the way, one of the pastors here at Waypoint. If this is your first time, we're welcome. And if, we're just so glad that we get to come each week and, and worship God and hear His Word. But we've been in this sermon series in Jeremiah for seven weeks. And Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Because he warned the people over and over and over again to turn to God. And they didn't. And God allowed a foreign army to invade his people and and take them, attack their city and take them into exile. I'm not sure how much you thought about Jeremiah before this series. Some of you might have grown up in church and heard this story quite a bit. Some of you, this might be newer to you. Um, Some of you, the song from the 70s, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, maybe, is all you got. It's funny, I, I, my pastor growing up, or when I was in high school, he would tell the story. He, he was not, he became a Christian his senior year of of high school, and uh, he could play the guitar, and he was at some event, and they're like, oh, do you know any Christian songs? And he's like, I know Jeremiah was a bullfrog, right? That's about joy to the world, isn't that a... Isn't that a Christian song? For the younger folks, you may not know. It's just, just a song from the 70s. It sounds kind of religious. It's, it's, it's not. But, um, but Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament. And why does God spend so much time saying these things? Because... It's based around the siege and the destruction of his city. So he wants them to be very, very clear why, even though he warned them in the law and the Torah and Deuteronomy that if they didn't obey him, this would eventually happen. So it's, it's a book about God's patience and his mercy and his trying to get them to turn and their just continued rebellion. Jeremiah's prophecy was proclaimed about 600 years before Jesus, meaning that, they're, that these are 2,600 years old prophecies but they're still very important for us today as followers of Jesus because they proclaim the new covenant that God will not abandon his people. How many of you wanna just trust in the hope that God will not abandon you even when you mess up? This is the new covenant we see, the stuff that was just read, it may sound confusing, but I'm gonna try to help you see and it's good news that God is in charge of the world and even though It's broken. Even though there's war after war after war, God is still doing something. And that's what Jeremiah is trying to show us. So for this morning, I'm going to answer four questions. Where in human history and redemptive history is this prophecy from Jeremiah written? What's happening at the time? What's the context? Why is this passage containing serious judgments against some of the nations located near ancient Israel here in Jeremiah? Why why is it there? And then finally, what does this section in Jeremiah mean for us today? And in light of this passage, how are we to think and respond to how God works in the world? So the first three are kind of a history lesson. So it's okay if if you're the if you need that, follow with me. And then, but we're all going to need how how does this make sense for us today in a world that continually has war and is broken? All right, let's jump right in. Where in human history and redemptive history is this prophecy? So. You guys know I like to use the stage as my timeline of history. I've done this in a lot of my sermons. So imagine here, this is the Garden of Eden. This is the beginning when God creates. You guys are out. 
the Martinez family is really excited that they got, they, they get to be in the Garden of Eden. But we are here and God creates a good world and he creates humanity, man and woman, and, and calls them to cultivate this garden and to be his people. And they sin. And even in their sin, he doesn't destroy them. He says, I'll provide a way to save you. The first covenant God makes with his people. Even in your sin, I'm going to save you. Then there's violence and polygamy and injustice as Cain kills Abel and the world gets more and more violent and, and broken. And then you get to the time of Noah and the world is just violent and, and God does something about it. He warns them, but they don't listen. And he brings judgment and mercy. The judgment comes in the rain, but the mercy comes in the ark. And he makes a covenant with Noah saying, I will not destroy you. So as I'm, as I'm saying these things, let's put these, these words up on the screen. Covenant, injustice, idolatry and violence, and God's prophets. So all these things, I want us to think about how these things fit in the timeline. So God makes a covenant here, I'll never again destroy the earth. Then the Tower of Babel happens and people continue to disobey God and he spreads the people out. Then God calls Abraham and he says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna save the world through you. Then Abraham's family ends up in Egypt and God saves them out of Egypt through Moses and Miriam and Aaron. He calls these three prophets to be risen up and they enter in, I'm gonna come over here. They, they get to this point and then God says, I'm gonna give you the law, I'm gonna give you everything you need and I'm, you can enter into the promised land and you can be my people and I'm gonna give you this land. And he makes a covenant with Moses telling him, just obey this law. But he says, if you fail, You'll go into exile, but I will always be your God, and the promise I made to Abraham will never fail. They get in, God provides Deborah as a prophet, he provides Samuel, he raises up King David, he makes a covenant with King David. The people after David, David himself messes up, Solomon has tons of wives, can't, just wants power, even though he, he has the wisdom of God, he fails. The kingdom gets split into two. God continued, now there's only, we, we had, a couple of prophets there, but we get to this point of the story and just prophets keep coming and coming and coming. And God keeps using the term, the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of hosts. Like, he's like, guys, don't trust in your own armies, trust in me. But they don't listen. And the prophets, if you notice, the prophets show up at this point and they're just pouring out. Come on, guys, turn back to God. And God allows, first, the northern kingdom gets taken into Assyria and then the Finally, Jeremiah, where we are in the timeline, they just don't listen. And God says, I have to let you go. And I cannot put up with this injustice any longer. And he allows the Babylonian army to destroy them. In the process, God's not like, oh, Babylonians, I think you're great too. You need to turn to God. You need to stop the injustice. And he gives prophecies against each of these nations, asking them to turn to him. So that's where we are in the timeline. Make sense? All right. Now, what's happening in their context? Let's, we're gonna watch a short video. I thought this five minute video would do better than me trying to explain where we are in Jeremiah. Because without this background, everything else I'm gonna say doesn't make a ton of sense. So let's watch this video and then I'll, I'll finish the sermon.
the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice, and he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now, this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways, they've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders. The priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah. And Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in Chapter 7, it's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem, and as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God. And so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry. And God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. 
Now, this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack, first on Israel in chapters 26 to 45, and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last, and they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon too will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over to its own destruction. You'll have to come back next week for the exciting conclusion of what happens at the end of Jeremiah and then read the rest of the Bible to see all the good news. So, okay, it it did stop intentionally. Uh, Now you can see why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He continually tries to love these people and point them back to God and they don't listen. Um, So the summary is, Judah was given a final chance. The people of Israel repeatedly refused to listen. Yahweh, God, commands that they they stop doing this, but he gives them over to these earthly kingdoms because they had broken the term of the covenant. He offered a warning over and over again, but the people didn't listen. And God's justice can only allow evil to go so far. I'm going to put that up there. This is from the guys who made this video. They said, God's justice can only allow evil to go so far. And that's kind of the key theme of what's going on in this large section. We didn't read all of it. I only read, had James read part of it. So why this passage? Um, 
Let's look at the... <laughs> Is that on the computer? Okay. All right. All right. Why this passage? Um, go to the next slide. I think there's this, the summary of, of the passage. All these nations, God is calling out for their injustice. He calls out, the whole book of Jeremiah is calling out the, the nation of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, for their injustice, but he's calling out all these nations around them. He's not saying just because I'm punishing you, it means that everyone else is doing things right. He's like, no, I'm gonna deal with each group accordingly. Um, to help us understand this passage better, I thought it'd be good just, just to, let's just look, look at the summary of it. This is from Old Testament scholar J. Daniel Hayes. In Jeremiah 46, God and his sovereignty will bring judgment on prideful nations, but he will provide salvation for the remnant that truly believes. The prideful power of Egypt will crumble before God. God promises judgment on Egypt and on those who trust in Egypt. Interesting, this passage we read, go back to the last slide, is Egypt, the great nation, this is the, they finally get defeated. They think they can go into Babylon and defeat them, and they lose. So this is a prideful nation versus a prideful nation. The passage continues to tell us that the prideful power of Egypt literally crumbles before God. But God's promises of judgment on Egypt, um, God promises judgment on Egypt and on those who trust in Egypt. If you notice, a lot of the Torah is like, don't go back to Egypt, don't trust in their horses. Don't, when, when, when God establishes you in the land, trust in him. Don't make alliances with these people because you're trusting in military might. And he's like, no, trust in me. The passage continues, um, Jeremiah 47 to 49, God's judgment on the nations. And the main theme here is that God is at work throughout the world, judging and restoring. Some of the key themes are God is powerful and so is the powerful and sovereign king over all nations. God judges the nations, especially for their arrogance. God is consistent and just in his judgments. And then some Gentiles will participate in the future restoration. Two of the nations that are judged here, one is Moab and one is Ammon. And both of the people from both of those lines, those are actually from the descendants of Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, but descendants from their lines end up in Jesus' genealogy. Ruth comes from the line of Moab. God, God brings, out of broken situations, God brings forth restoration. In Jeremiah 50 and 51, the end of Babylon and the future of Israel, Babylon, the end of Babylon is contrasted with the everlasting restoration of God's people. God is extolled for his power and justice. It says God will destroy Babylon for what it did. The fate of Babylon is contrasted with the restoration of Israel. The future restoration will be characterized by forgiveness of sins. Interesting, if you look at chapter 50, it talks about the prophecy against Jeremiah, but then hope for his, I mean against Babylon, but hope for Israel simultaneously. God made a covenant with Abraham and with the people, and he's, he's fulfilling that covenant. But all the people of the world are part of that. He says, through Abraham, he tells Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. When they got into the promised land, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. God would be their protector. God would be the leader 
of their army. We used the New Living Translation this morning, and as I mentioned earlier, um, it says the Lord of Heaven's armies. If you use the NIV, it'll say the Lord Almighty. If you use the, some of the older translations, it might say the Lord of hosts. And hosts is just an old English term for a, a group of army, an army group. But God, this translates it the Lord of Heaven's armies because it's trying to show you that the, when this term is used, and it's like I said, it's not really used early on in the Old Testament, but as the people start rebelling against God more and more, and they're living in the land and they're not trusting God, the term gets used more and more often. And he's like, trust me to fight the battles for you. This is hard stuff. It's a hard passage. Um, I can show you, are there a couple maps up there? Real quick, I want to show you these couple of maps. So this first one is Egypt. And this is before, uh, before, a, before uh, Moses goes into the Promised Land. You can see that Egypt pretty much controlled a lot. You see how Babylonia, you had Assyria, you had these other empires. Next slide. This is Solomon's empire. This is God gave them the Promised Land. They they got all this land, and this is prime real estate. And God, in, in, in the Torah, it doesn't say in, you know, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it doesn't say, hey, take this land and keep going and keep going and keep going. It says, no, this is the land I gave you. I'll protect you. I'll be your people. Trust me. Trust me. If you notice, every time the Israelites win a battle in Joshua or Judges or in, into the Kings and Samuel. It's, they win the battle when the odds are stacked against them and they trust God. When they create alliances with other armies and, and, and try to do earthly strategy, they lose the battle. God gave them this land and they slowly, through their sin, through their not trusting in God, they, they begin to lose it. And this is an analogy for us. God is telling us, trust me, trust me. Trust me with what I've called you to. I will protect you. I will be your God. You don't need... He, God didn't want them to, to do what the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians were doing. He didn't want them to create a state of military power. He wanted them to create a state of justice and mercy and a place where people would be drawn to it because of his goodness, because of the way that people treated each other. And this is an example for us as a church that we need to trust God. The next slide shows... Uh, this is how far the, the Babylonians were able to conquer. And they thought, man, we're really awesome. Notice that they never, even though they defeated the Egyptians, they never actually conquered them. But look next. Guess what? Uh, the Persians come and conquer the whole thing, the green, and then they keep growing. And guess what? They get conquered by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And guess what? They get conquered by the Romans. And guess what? All of this gets conquered not by military power, but Jesus comes into that Roman world that all these previous empires had tried to fight for and creates a completely different kind of kingdom. So this is the background. This is what's going on in this passage that we're looking at, that, that James read part of, that we're looking at this morning. God, these nations want power. They are not going to be satisfied with just their land. They want to keep going and going and going. And that's the evil in the human heart. And God is dealing with it. He was dealing with it then and he's dealing with it now. So I want to answer this last question this morning. What does this section of Jeremiah mean for us today? How are we to think, think about 
and respond to how God works in the world. This is hard stuff, right? Some of you don't want to think about war. You don't want to think about conflicts. Some of you, it may be part of your job. Maybe you teach history or you're, you work in a justice-based field. You work with refugees or something. So it's always on your radar. I'm going to share two stories that I personally, from my, my life, that forced me to, to deal with this. The first one is when I was, I was an international student in China like 20 years ago. And we get into our class, and it's the first day of school, but some of, there's probably going to be about 10, 15 international students in my class. And, but because it, it's the first couple of days, some of them haven't got there yet, you know, whatever. So there's just like me and two other students, and there's a girl from Japan. And she asked me in English, we're talking in English because I couldn't speak Japanese, and she could speak English. And I, our Chinese wasn't very good. This was like Chinese... This, like the, almost the beginner level, a little higher than beginner level. So she asked me, she's like, where are you from? And I'm like, I tell, I tell people I'm from Atlanta. Oh, I know Atlanta, Olympics. She's all excited. I was like, where are you from? Hiroshima. I know, you know, I, I couldn't have the same response to her as she had about Atlanta and the Olympics. Why do I know about her city? I didn't know what to say. She's like, I understand, I understand. It's complicated. You know, you hear about it in history, but when you meet a real person, like her grandparents were probably, everybody in her family was affected by that. And this isn't a debate over whether Harry Truman and the others are right or wrong or, or what we should have done or not. It's just, this is a real person in front of me, you know? Another situation that really impacted me is at a Waypoint community group, one of our community groups, one of our community group members I wanted to do a fun icebreaker, and I'm not thinking that we have an international church. We have some people from some different places, and I was like, I can't remember the icebreaker. It was something about fun memories from your childhood or something, and this person's childhood was ripped apart because they lived in a, a country where militias continually ravaged their villages, stealing the young men and forcing them into militaries and stealing the women and into all kinds of things. So him and his family had to flee. So he didn't have a fun icebreaker story like all of us did who grew up in America. He had a, but he was joyful and, and jolly. He's in this room today and, and you know, it's just, I asked him beforehand if I could share the story. The world is broken. I mean, for us who live in America, I can't even imagine right now if I had to live every day in fear that some militia would come break into my house and steal my boys or steal my daughter and force them into something terrible. But for many people in the world, that's the reality right now. And, and the good news is, is it's getting less and less. God's justice and, and is going out and, and, and things like this are less than they were 100 years ago and less than they were 500 years before that, but they're still happening. So how do we deal with this? I've been struggling with this since 10th grade world history class. I'm a history buff, I love, I love information. I've given you probably too much information for this sermon. I broke all the laws of TED Talks today already and we're not even, you know. But how do, how do we deal with this? You know, I'm a campus minister, I work at Duke with international students and 
meet people from all over the world, and their governments might be at, in conflict with our government. Their, our government might have had a war with their government. You know, but there's, here's a real person in front of me just trying to love their, have a family, have a job, do, do good. And what, sometimes we think, what is God doing in response to all this? What are we to make of these passages in Jeremiah? I know we were doing this Old Testament Bible reading plan, and some of you came to Erica and I and just like, I have to stop. Just right now, I love the Bible, I love God's Word, but I have to stop reading just because I can't make sense of, of the brokenness and the violence. And, and they're not saying that the Bible's wrong or anything. This is in all the literature. You know what I'm saying? It's all groups do turn to evil and turn to pride and turn to power. Even a lot of regimes that start off good turn to power. And we ask God, is sending a prophet enough? Just can you do more, God? How many of you have asked these questions? To be honest, the Bible is filled with people lamenting and crying out to God, asking these very questions. In the lament podcast that just went out this week, if you want to listen to the Waypoint podcast, it's not primarily about just lamenting violence in the world, but it's just, it's just how we as people deal with the brokenness. And I want to be honest, I struggle. It's hard. And today I'm not going to tell you how to deal with it. I'm not going to give you five steps on how to deal with injustice in the world. We do that a lot at Waypoint. We, we try to fight injustice in every way possible. We, we know that that's part of building Christ's kingdom. But for this morning, I want to focus on how do we process this? What does the Bible say to comfort us to know that God is in control of the world? And I go to four places, so I'm just going to end with these four Bible passages that have comforted me. And I want us to think about this. And while we're doing this, I thought it would be fun. Just each section will get two beach balls and hold it for a while, pray, pass it on to somebody. Here. <laughs> and I don't know, whatever God, you can hold it for a while, you can hold it for a second. But just think, this represents 7 billion people. You know? It's, it's overwhelming, but, but we know God's in control. You know? So just hold it. Let's look at Psalm 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he has done. Great is the Lord. He is most, wor most worthy of praise. He is to be a feared among all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offerings and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. 
Let all the earth tremble before him. Tell the nations the Lord reigns. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. He will judge all peoples fairly. Hold on this slide. You guys familiar, you know where this, there's a song about this. We sing it a lot. He rules the world with truth and grace. Makes the nations prove. This joy to the world is based on Psalm 96. The glories of his righteousness. He rules the world with truth and grace. He will judge fairly. Can we rest in that? Where else are we going to go? I know sometimes when you see the brokenness, when you hear about it. But if you meet the person who's fleeing from these war-torn areas and hear about their faith, that they're, tr they're clinging to God. God is all they have, and they know he'll be faithful even though their situation is, is hard. It goes on to say, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea and everything in it shout his praise, let the fields and their crops burst out with joy, let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. He rules the world with truth and grace. In Romans 11, Paul ends this glorious section where he explains why we're here as people and what our brokenness and what God's doing. That's kind of chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. And he ends with this. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn away godless. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Actually, this is, go back to that. Paul is, Paul took a prophecy from Isaiah and a prophecy from Jeremiah and fused them together and made this statement. This isn't exactly in the Old Testament. He, he took the Greek Old Testament and, and fused it together to, to make this statement. This is the new covenant. Paul goes on and he says, if, 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 if it's hard for you to figure all this stuff out, it's okay. You don't have to. You can rest that God is in control. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And this is also Paul taking a series of Old Testament passages and putting them together to say, it's okay to just sit and not have all the answers. We'll never know the brokenness fully, but we'll know that Jesus came and God is doing something about it. Psalm 46 has been a comfort to many people. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake and with their singing, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most, holy, most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty, this is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of heaven's armies, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on earth. And you think at this moment, oh no, it's going to be one of those. God did all this stuff with armies. It says, he makes wars cease.
to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. This is the heart of God. He hates violence. He came and died on a cross so that violence would be eliminated forever. We're not there yet, like Pastor Lawrence shared in the previous couple sermons. He says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When you're worried and scared about what God's doing in the world, we have this beautiful saying where God's like, be still and know it's okay. I'm in control. Even though it seems chaotic, even though it, it, it seems out of hand. We have news now. We have CNN and, and all these channels and internet. So not only were an ancient, a person even 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and a person before newspapers would, would not really know all the devastation and all the brokenness of the world. So it's good we have it because we can go fight it and fix it. But it's also hard because we hear about it all the time. But we can rest and be still in God. Final passage for this morning. In Matthew 12, Matthew quotes Isaiah. He's the only gospel writer to quote Isaiah. And he says, this passage is about Jesus. It was written 600 years before Jesus came to earth. 700 years. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And he does that as Jesus, but he does that through his church. We get to be a part of this. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. And here's the clincher. This is from Isaiah about Jesus. In his name the nations will put their hope. You are part of a new kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus came and established. A kingdom not of weapons and vengeance and violence. Not a kingdom of military might. There's no... In Romans 13 and in other places, militaries are important, governments are important. God doesn't want anarchy. That's not what this is saying. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not going to be built by military power. He did not raise up an army. He spent three years walking around a very small geographic area with a ragtag group of men and women who were very low in society, got no weapons, no army, didn't even tell people to write stuff down. He just kept proclaiming a kingdom. And those people changed the whole world. We call today 2023 because 2,023 years ago, the world was changed. His impact has gone to the whole world. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but it is. His grace is spreading out. It's not, we're not there yet. Let's keep fighting this battle, but we're not going to fight it through military power. This is not a, a kingdom of military might, but a kingdom of love and peace. A kingdom where those who are poor in spirit and recognize the need for God, their need for God, are the blessed ones. A kingdom of fighting darkness with the light of Jesus. A kingdom of people who fight by being filled with the spirit and practicing the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the weapons of our army. So what can we do? 
Again, stay in the word and in gospel community. You can put this up. As we study, meditate, and feed on the Bible together. We don't need to avoid these passages in Jeremiah. These passages help us see that even in all the brokenness, God is doing something. Then we need to repent and turn from sin. Turn to God and strive to honor him. And we need to do this personally, but we also need to do it corporately. We do it together. We, we recognize sins in the church and we, and, we, and, we, and we recognize sins in our culture and we try to say, God, how can we fight these injustices? What, what? But we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with our own hearts. Then in, I think we just have to trust in his justice and mercy. Sometimes we want to be the ones in control of what God should or shouldn't do. Remember, we're not going to sing Joy to the World today. I told Nathan too late. I kind of was, wrote the sermon more later in the week. I wish we could. I actually have asked. We, at Waypoint, sometimes when I preach, we've sung Christmas, Christmas carols in the middle of the year just because it, it linked to the sermon. But he rules the world with truth and grace. Remember that. We can trust in his justice and his mercy. And finally, as, as new covenant people, this is what the... Jeremiah is about a new covenant. Jesus, when he gives us the Lord's Supper, says, this is the new covenant in my blood. As new covenant people under King Jesus, let's live for his kingdom as agents of his justice and his mercy, pointing people to the hope that is found only in him. He is our hope. He is the hope of the world. Let's rest in that. Let's pray. God, it's, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every word of the Bible. We thank you that we have Jeremiah. We have this text that just shows that you hate violence, you hate justice, and you're doing something about it. But sometimes when we read it, we, we're confused. We're like, God, why did you do it that way? Or why didn't you do it this way? Or why didn't you do things faster or this or that? It's, it's easy to, to get caught in the, the confusion. We hear about brokenness. We hear about war. And we, and we, we want it to stop. We pray. We, we, we set up organizations to fight. We work with governments to fight. God, we're, we're doing all these things, but as a people, help us to turn to you, to trust you, and to be locally be your people. And may there be small little local gatherings of your people all over the world. And the fruit of that is like you transformed the Roman Empire with the early Christians. You'll transform the world through local communities of people being agents of your justice and your mercy and pointing everyone to Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. We just ask you for this and thank you that we get to be a part of it as a local church here in Durham Chapel Hill. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.